we would be glad to take her to church if your church will allow us to come back. The man was sharing his experience when his adult daughter Jessica had moved into a group home and Jessica was severely disabled and he was speaking with the staff at the group home. He explains, we had asked if they would be able to take Jessica to church every so often and the director responded, we would be glad to take her along with a few of her fellow residents. And she paused and continued more slowly. I mean, if your church will, will allow us to come back, we weren't quite sure what that meant. What do you mean, allow us to come back? Well, too many churches we visit ask us very nicely not to come back. We pressed for more. So she explained that wheelchairs, and personal appearances, and occasional noises, and drooling, all things that are normal for Jessica and for her friends, made too many church people uncomfortable. And they made it very, very clear they were not welcome in the house that Jesus built. What does the Bible say about how we as a church, as the family of Jesus, should relate to people who have disabilities? How does Jesus speak into this? We're going to look at a passage in 1 Corinthians where the Apostle Paul speaks into this with the authority that comes to him as an apostle inspired by Jesus himself to speak into our lives and to tell us what his expectation, what his longing and desire is for his people, the church, what we are and how we might therefore live as God's family. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to look at verses 12 to 14 and then we're going to jump ahead and read verses 21 through 27. Uh, This is God's word through his apostle Paul. He writes, the body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body, and so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, we were all given the one spirit to drink. Now the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Then dropping down to verse 21, he continues, The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable, we treat with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lacked it. So that there should be no divisions in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. For if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. What is Paul saying? What is Jesus saying through his servant Paul? He's saying, first point, embrace those. I want you to embrace those who are more physically and visibly broken than yourselves. 
You know, who are when we talk about the disabled? You always picture a wheelchair because that's the sign you see, the emblem in a parking lot very often. But, but really, you're talking about 40 million Americans or more. It's about one in every six people has a disability, and uh, they may involve vision impairment or uh, being deaf or hard of hearing. It may be a mental health condition or an intellectual or cognitive disability. It may be an acquired brain injury or being on the autism spectrum. Uh, It may be a physical disability, what we usually think of first. It may be a disability involving one's ability to communicate or understand. It could be something genetic, like muscular dystrophy, or it could be something chromosomal, like Down syndrome, or it could be due to some form of exposure in the womb, or it could be something that develops during childhood, or it could be something related to an actual injury that you have as an adult. It could be related to long-standing conditions like diabetes and its complications, or it, it could be something progressive that continually gets worse, or it could be something intermittent, like forms of MS. But it can bring incredible suffering, not only to the person who has the disability, but to those who are there to love and care for them as well. And in 1 Corinthians 4, you know, Paul says that that outwardly he wastes away. He talks of his own thorn in the flesh, probably blindness, though we're not certain. What our surrounding culture seems unable to grasp is that short of sudden death when you're in perfect health, most of us will eventually end up disabled in some form or another. Uh, Nancy Iceland has coined the term the temporarily able-bodied to describe those of us who live without a disability. I mean, even in Exodus 4, you think of how pervasive this is when it describes Moses likely having a speech impediment. and those who are disabled in our culture particularly, are often, they're often invisible. Uh, we try very hard and we succeed at hiding people with disabilities from everyday view. People with visible and invisible brokenness often feel like they have to hide their problem in order to join God's people for worship. In a congregation of about 300 people, there should be about 50 people here who have disabilities. And so where are they? And why do they feel they need to hide? You see, for a lot of people with disabilities, their, their defining experience is one of exclusion, of being uh, uh, set apart. Uh, it was the Catholic, Canadian Roman Catholic theologian and philosopher Jean Vanier who, who wrote in his book, Becoming Human. He said this, he said, Those who are weak have great difficulty finding their place in our society. The image of the ideal human as powerful and capable disenfranchises the old and the sick and the less abled. There's a lack of synchronicity between our society and people with disabilities. A society that honors only the powerful, the clever, and the winners necessarily belittles the weak. It's as if to say to be human is to be powerful. What's that feel like? It feels like exclusion. I mean, I don't have a disability, um, but I have a series of medical conditions that make it almost impossible for me to eat food that I have not actually cooked myself because if you take the Venn diagram of the circle of all the things my gastroenterologist says I can eat without getting sick and all the things my endocrinologist says I can eat without getting sick, the overlap between those circles is really, really, really tiny. And so for me, even, just with, with just... A limitation of what I can eat 
that means very often feeling excluded. I walk into a room full of people, they're partying, there's food around, and they always wonder why I'm not eating. I go to a presbytery meeting and lunch is served. And I, I very strategically find a quiet, dark room somewhere far away from everybody else so that I can check my email for 30 minutes while they all eat. And then I can sneak down and pretend like I've just eaten with anybody else. Because if I sit there and don't eat, the conversation is inevitably about who? About me and about what? About my limitations. It gets old. Uh, and, and I know if I feel that excluded, often rejected, like a freak, like God can't love me because of that, imagine... If I couldn't walk, imagine if I had a major mental deformity or, or, or damage, that, that a brain injury of some sort that would drastically affect my ability to even be in the presence of other people and communicate with them. What I feel when I feel so rejected, multiply that by a thousand times. I can barely imagine what that experience is like. You know, in a survey of ministry leaders uh, with respect to the biggest challenges faced by those ministering with the disabled, uh, leaders named fear and stigma as their biggest challenges. You'd think it'd be the lack of accessible ramps or restrooms, but it's fear and stigma are the biggest challenges. And it goes both ways. One leader says that not only are able-bodied people fearful of the unknown, that they might say or do something inappropriate, but the person with the disability often is just as fearful of the rejection, the disappointment, the further frustration of not being understood or of being patronized or worse, being pitied. When asked specifically why disabled people don't attend church, the most common answer was accessibility, but not physical so much as social and spiritual accessibility. Life's difficult enough on a daily basis for these families. They just don't have the energy to struggle for acceptance and care within a church community. They report being asked to leave because of disruptive noises or activities. In some cases, churches worry about liability in case something happens. And for families with a disability, the fear of not being accepted, of being singled out in inappropriate ways, of of seeing people who are afraid of them, all of these keep disabled parents, uh, adults and parents with disabled children away from churches. So what's Jesus telling us through his apostles here? What he is saying very clearly is that the church cannot be the church. You cannot be the family of God unless people with disabilities, what he calls your weakest members, are not on the periphery of the church, but in the very center of the church community. He says it this way, verse 22, verse 23, the eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. The head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, Those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. That means you cannot be the church without disabled brothers and sisters in your midst. You cannot be the family of God unless they feel welcome in the center, not a special ministry on the side, but in the center of your life together as the people of God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says it this way in Life Together. He said, in a Christian community... Everything depends on whether each individual is an indispensable link in a chain. Only when the smallest link is securely interlocked within that chain is the chain unbreakable. Every Christian community, he writes, must realize that not only do the weak need the strong, but the strong cannot exist without the weak. The elimination of the weak is the death of the fellowship of Jesus. So if one in six has a disability and our congregations don't consistently reflect that, 
if those who are weaker, the indispensable and especially honorable members of the church, in Paul's words, for the most part aren't here, then the church is missing out on what it means to be the church of Jesus. Michael Beetz writes it this way. He says, by Paul's definition of the church, most churches today are incomplete without people with disabilities. This is a fundamentally gospel-related problem that must be addressed. The church can't be the church without disabled members. The weakest members are indispensable, meaning they're an absolute minimum requirement to be the church together. And that means for us who are more able-bodied at the moment, it means going out of our way to include them. Verse 23, the parts that we think are less honorable, we therefore treat with special honor. See, the person with a disability, their place in the church, he says, is not one of pity, but one of honor. Uh, Certainly there's compassion that's always at the heart of Jesus, but to honor someone is to recognize that they have a more honored place at the banquet table of Jesus. Uh, And maybe for some of you, God's calling you to take a risk, to volunteer, to come alongside somebody with a disability. They're they're all around you. Just look around your city. Invite them to church. Help them get here. Help them find a way in community. Make a way. Make a place for them. Introduce them to people. Gather others around them so that they don't have the peripheral place for special needs, but they have the central chair, the most important throne in the church that the community gathers around them. That is giving them special honor within the family of God. It means going out of your way. It's what Allison read from Luke 14 when Jesus told the parable of the banquet. It's a parable of, of a great feast that a king da, that offers, and, and he invites all of the religious people and the powerful people, and they all start giving lame excuses. And of course, the king is Jesus, and he's inviting people into his family. And so he sees that there's, there's nobody arriving and everybody's giving an excuse and he tells his servants, go out into the high, go, go out and, and bring in, it's four classes of people, the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. That's poor people and those with disabilities. He says, that's who's coming into my kingdom. That's who belongs. That's who's my family. Those are my sisters. Those are my brothers. Those are the ones who are coming. And they say, King Jesus, we already did that. That's, that's who here is. We went all through the city. We got them all. They came in. They're here. They know they, they know they need a Savior. They know they're broken. So he says, no, then go further. Go out into the highways and the byways, the country lanes, and bring in those people. And the antecedent, the argument can be made, the people is those poor and crippled and blind and lame. So that at the end of the day, everybody who comes into the feast of Jesus is there because they're poor or they're crippled or they're blind, or they're lame. It's the family of those who know they need a rescuer, the family of those who know they need a savior, the family of those who are ready to say, I am broken, I am damaged. And he instructs us then, gives us this model to go out and include them, to bring them in. So do these folks feel welcome at God's banquet in the church? Or is church just too much of a burden for them? Again, too often the church isn't there. So how can we do this? If we're called to embrace those who are more physically or more visibly broken than ourselves, then the way to going about that is, first of all, to embrace our own brokenness. 
Um, you know, I may not share the experience of disability, but I do know what it's like to be broken. I know what it's like when my mind fixates on things it shouldn't fixate on. I know what it's like when I can't regulate my emotions. I know what it's like when I worship things other than my God. I know what it's like when to be discontent. I know what it's like to have a soul that's damaged. I know what it's like to have a body that's damaged. I know what it's like to take medication multiple times every day that I'm going to have to take every day for the rest of my life just to stay alive until I die. Yeah. I know what it's like to be broken. Martin Luther got this. He said the only thing that we contribute to our salvation is the sin. See, there's nothing like trying to serve another human being to even remind us of how broken we are. I remember working in a group home 20 years ago for uh, people with, with developmental disabilities. A lot of them also had psychiatric diagnoses. And, and I learned a lot. Um, I learned that these are people made in God's image. I learned that nonverbal people can be really good communicators, sometimes better communicators than verbal people. Um, I learned, you know, these are people who, who, who clients who lived in uh, they needed 24-hour supervision. They lived in a group home. Most of them worked jobs in sheltered workshops. And, uh, and I have some great memories. I still remember all of their names uh, 20 years later. But I've read about um, Henry Nouwen. You've heard of Henry Nouwen. Um, he was the uh, you know, Roman Catholic theologian uh, who uh, you know, served in a, a ministry with taking care of someone with disabilities. And he talks about how his soul grew so immensely through that interaction. And I, I wish I had had that, that experience. Um, I learned a lot, though. I learned uh, that there are a whole lot of steps in trying to train someone how to do tasks that I thought were simple. I learned that an EpiPen needle is really, really long. I learned what it, uh, that I can be a very impatient human being. I learned that I am not as loving as I thought I was and that I cannot fix people and that I am incredibly self-centered and I learned that I'm not a hero, that I'm just another guy who's broken and that my brokenness is less visible but that I need a savior as much as anyone else. So ask yourself, how do you view people with disabilities? Do you view some disabilities as making someone better or worse? Do you feel superior to people with disabilities? Are you ever guilty of patronizing them or pitying them? They don't want your pity. They just want to be included. And most importantly, do you consider them a liability to your church or to your family or to your time? Are they a black hole of energy and resources that would be better spent elsewhere? Are you, are you ready to embrace your own brokenness and see yourself and others who are maybe more visibly broken but not more broken than you are? See, the gospel... The gospel destroys this barrier that we create between people with disabilities and people we call normal. Um, you know, among some of the more radical kind of disability rights activist types, they've, they've wanted to break down these categories altogether by saying, no, no one really has a disability. It's just a different kind of normal. And so if you're blind, that's not a disability. Blindness is just a different kind of normal. And, and what they're wanting to do is they're wanting to say, we don't want to exclude a class of people because of some limitation we want to get them in the same category as everyone else with the same empathy and the same community. And it's interesting because Jesus is right on board with that concern and he is right on board with, with, with addressing it, but he addresses it the opposite way. Because you see, the, the, the activist wants to say, there are no disabled people. Let's put everybody in the normal category. And Jesus says it's actually the other way around. We're not going to put, like, Adam was normal, but he lost it. 
Everyone else is in the damaged, broken, disabled category. See, we're all broken. Stanley Hauerwas says it, it this way. He says, uh, for all our pretension, we are as helpless as they are. And when all is said and done, like them, we depend on, our, on others for our lives and for simple things that make life livable. To Christians, such a distinction between the disabled and the normal uh, must be particularly anathema for the very content of Revelation is to teach us precisely that we are indeed a dependent people. Paul, actually, we didn't read it, but in verse 2, he he'd reminded the Corinthians, you people were pagans. You were so jacked up. You were worshiping the wrong God. You were wrong, doing it the wrong way. Everything about your relationships and your marriages and your lifestyle and your thought life and how you lived your life was all wrong. You are so damaged and broken and so loved and so rescued by Jesus. But we're all in that same category, whether we're weak or relatively strong. Uh, Jenny Weiss Block, in, in her book, Copious Hosting, A Theology of Access for People with Disabilities, writes that, uh, well, she contends that, that disability and brokenness have moved in the public characterization from something that's scary that we hide. You think of Captain Hook, oh, he's disabled, he's scary, get away from him, to, to Tiny Tim, one that we pity. And now she argues that it's something kind of politically correct and somehow admirable, but she further contends that playing such a role for an actor is one of the most sure ways to garner awards and kudos. A partial list of such heroic character parts might include Dustin Hoffman in Rain Man, Tom Hanks in Forrest Gump, Patty Duke and Melissa Gilbert in different versions of The Miracle Worker. Robert De Niro in Awakenings, Daniel Day-Lewis in My Left Foot, John Hurt in Elephant Man, Tom Cruise in Born on the Fourth of July, Kirstie Alley in Profoundly Normal, and the list goes on and on. But Block comments about this trend that perhaps it reveals society's view of the disabled person as radically other when we believe that an actor who can actually play someone with a disability is worthy of such special recognition. See, we're trying to say they're normal, but we're actually saying if you can play that, those people are aliens. That's amazing. We're going to give you an award. Beats says it this way. He says, as we've seen, people with disabilities are not other. They are far more like us than they are unlike us. And in fact, they are us. A major step towards appropriating the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus toward ministry among those who are disabled is seeing one's commonality with those who live more visibly broken lives than we do. So Jesus is saying, I want you to embrace those who are more physically and visibly broken than yourself because they are indispensable. You are to treat them with special honor as the church. And the way we do that is by embracing our own brokenness. We're in the same boat. Why would we do that? Final point, because God is the God of the broken. Even in verse 13, he says that in Christ there's neither male nor female, Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free. All are in Christ. They are equal in Christ. He's saying, even those of you who are slaves, even those of you who are Gentiles, that's worse than a slave, even you have been brought in because God is the God of the slave and God is the God of the Gentile. In verse 24, he says, God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor to the very parts that lacked it. See, the God of the Bible is the God of the broken. 
and the disabled. 1 Corinthians 1 says, God chose the foolish things, the weak things, the lowly things, the despised things to nullify the wise, the strong, and the self-assured. And if you're here this morning and you are thinking, I feel foolish, I feel weak, I feel despised to understand the God of the Bible is your God. He is your defender. He is your rescuer. And you are the very person with whom he identifies. Look throughout the Bible. There are all these examples of seemingly heroic figures in the Bible that are actually highlighting their weakness so that God, or God is highlighting their weakness so that he can display his strength. Think of Judges 6 with Gideon fighting the Midianites, and God shrinks Gideon down his force further and further and smaller and smaller and weaker and weaker so that he can get weak enough that God can actually use him to display his power as a God who saves. You think of 1 Samuel 16 when David is anointed as the king, and David's not even there because his dad brings in all the other brothers who are much better and stronger and wiser and says, hey, it's probably one of these. One of these is going to be the king pick one of these. And he's like, yeah, I don't know. None of these. These guys are all too strong. Is there another one? And he says, well, there's the kid out back watching the sheep. And they bring him in. It's this scrawny little kid, David. And yet it's precisely his weakness that God then uses to raise up victory because the battle was not David's and it was not the Israelites. The battle belonged to the Lord. God making his power perfect in our what? Weakness. Isaiah 35, the Lord's concern for the weak, the broken, the disenfranchised, and the marginalized. Speaking of the coming of God's salvation, the prophet says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy, because God is the God of the disabled. Zephaniah 3, he says, I will rescue the lame. And give them praise and honor, not just in Israel, but in every land upon the earth. Think of Luke 5, when Jesus touched the leper before healing him, just to identify with him. He didn't have to do that. Then he healed not only him, but a paraplegic. Luke 7, a couple chapters later, John the Baptist is wondering, Jesus, are you really the Savior? Or or am I getting this wrong? And he tells John the Baptist, guys, to, to go back and tell John what you see. And what does he see? He says, tell them that the blind are receiving their sight and the lame are walking. Lepers are being cleansed. The deaf are hearing. The dead are being raised up and the poor have had good news preached to them. In Jesus' mind, the primary indication of his being the Messiah of God and the Savior of the earth was his ministry to the physically disabled and the socially weak and alienated because God is the God of the broken and the disabled. God's power shows up most in our weakness. You think of Hebrews 11 and the Faith Hall of Fame. It speaks of those who were made strong out of weakness and says, therefore, the world was not worthy of them. Or Paul's thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians, possibly his blindness, where he says three times he went to the Lord. That's Jesus in Paul's language. He said, Lord, take this away from me. And he fasted and he prayed. And God said no. And he tried it again and said, Lord, take this away from me. Then he tried it a third time and said, Lord, take this weakness away from me. Take this disability away from me. Take my brokenness away from me. Lord, please do it. And he heard a voice speak to him. What did the voice say? My grace is sufficient for you, Paul, because my power is made perfect in your weakness. For when I am weak, Paul says, then I am strong. 
Jesus, who became weak for us. Jesus, who became pitiable for us. Jesus, who became blemished and suffered and died on our behalf. You know, Beats says that it points out how our culture says you need to avoid the broken and the disabled. You need to hide your weakness and blemishes and act as if they're not there. But Scripture gives us story after story and proposition after proposition saying instead, understand that you, all of you in some sense or another, are broken. Stop avoiding the truth and embrace it. For in that embrace, we begin to grasp the power of God through his grace made manifest to us in our weakness. This is Jesus who took up our infirmities. The brokenness of this fallen world is real, it's painful, it carries so many tears, but it's not the last word. The good news gives us this message that the God of creation entered into this brokenness. He took on himself human form. The infinite became finite and limited and weak and in a very physical, real sense, broken. That's Jesus. That's the crucified God. That's the man of sorrows. That's a God who became broken so that we might be made whole. It's what Johnny Erickson Tata, herself quadriplegic since she was a teenager, and she was frolicking with friends around the time of her graduation, and they were at a watering hole, and she dove in and hit a rock and severed her spine, and she's been in a wheelchair ever since. But she points to the handicap of God in Christ, that God did what what, what was the least expected thing, a, a handicap. You know, one of the definitions is to deliberately weaken yourself so as to be more fair in sport. And that God took on himself the handicap of being finite, the infinite, limited, so that he could love us. Jesus, master architect of the universe who designed planets and stars and galaxies and nebulae and pulsars and quasars, Step down to creating stools and benches as a carpenter in first century Palestine. The almighty God emptying himself, taking the form of a servant. The eternal word who spoke space and time into being with his words. Step down to use his words to speak to prostitutes and tax collectors. He did it so that we might be free. That's love. That's his voluntary handicap, the love of Jesus. Friends, do you want to be loved going to find it in Jesus. All you have to be is broken and damaged and needing a rescuer and coming to his open arms of love saying, Lord, I am ready to receive and receiving that love and being loved so that you might then go and live as one who is loved. I'll tell you a story, a true story. John Knight and his wife, Denise, were happily anticipating the birth of their first child, their first son. And they had already decided they were going to name him Paul, but when Paul was born, there was a problem. He was born with a condition called anophthalmia, which meant that Paul was born without eyes. And John and Denise would later discover their son had a host of other issues, including severe autism and a growth hormone deficiency. And two months after Paul's birth, as John was looking at his son, hooked up to tubes and sensors and surrounded by medical professionals, the cold white lights blinking above him in a desperate, empty hospital room, he quietly told God, he said, God, you are strong, that is true, and you are wicked. You are cruel. Do this to me, God, but not to my boy. 
what did he ever do to you? And shortly after that prayer, John and Denise quit going to church. It was one couple from the church that didn't give up on them. It was Carl and Garolyn. They never pressured John and Denise about spiritual issues, but they would stop by and they'd leave simple gifts like a a loaf of fresh bread, a, a basket of soap, or some shampoo for Denise. And John later said that it was Carl and Garolyn as if they were saying, hey, I I notice you, and I see you, and I know you're hurting, and I love you. Eventually, John and Denise accepted a dinner invitation from Carl and Garolyn. During dinner, John told Carl, you can't believe, you can believe whatever you want. I don't care. I have evidence that God is cruel. Carl softly replied, I love you, John. I have regard for you, and I love your little boy. Carl and Garolyn's four children also displayed incredible love for their son. John described it this way. He says, I'd look and they'd throw my little boy up in the air and make him laugh and do funny bird sounds. And that was confounding because most people, most adults couldn't do that. And so I'd have this extraordinary expression of love and affection at the dinner table here. And I would turn to my left, and there would be at least one of these children playing with my boy like he was a real boy. I wasn't even sure he was a real boy at times. Based on this family's quiet, persistent love, John and Denise eventually returned to the Lord and to their local church. And when they returned, Carl and Garolyn stayed by their side, making sure that their son made it into the nursery, making sure they weren't asked awkward questions, making sure they always had community around them and especially around their son. John said they persisted for me. That was a big deal. They persisted with us as a family. See, this family was hurting. And when they looked at the losses afflicted on on their family, on their child, They could not see the love of God. But when they looked at his people, they saw a loving God was real because they needed loving. Their little boy needed loving. And where they found the love of God was in you, the people of Jesus, who have been loved so that you might go and live loved. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your love, for your compassions, which do not fail. We pray, Father, for us as a church, that you would move us. You would even raise up among us those who would be burdened to welcome in those who have special needs, Lord. That we would be a community, not with a ministry to those people, but with an understanding that we are those people. And we're going to do whatever it takes, whatever we can do, to make sure that everyone the weakest among us, indispensable, is treated with special honor. Lord, only you can do this because this is what you did for us. This is what you did for us on the cross when you took the place of shame and weakness so that we, who you viewed as indispensable, though we were sinners, you gave us the place of greatest honor as you died for us that we might live, that we might be loved, that we might be freed, by your love. We consecrate to you the elements on this table, Lord, that you administer to us the grace of Jesus who loves us and washes us and sets us free. Amen.